We are, uh, we are in the book of Acts. I think last week uh, Bobby uh, led you through Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Is that right? I hope that's right, because I'm going to start at 19. So We're going we're to go through uh, verses 19 through 30 today. It says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Thus ends our reading of God's powerful word. May all who hear it find that they too can be called Christians. Now it is said that when Alexander the Great was leading his troops in battle, that after each great campaign, he he would then bring judgments upon his soldiers who had committed any crimes during the process. And after having defeated the Persians, Alexander went into the, the great palace that was built a long, long time ago by Nebuchadnezzar in order to hold court. And there he sat upon a, a mighty golden throne, pronouncing his sentences for the crimes that were charged to his soldiers. One after one, a soldier was brought before him, having their misdeeds read aloud and then having them give a defense in the hopes of, of leniency from their king. But it seemed that on that day, no one could be delivered from the, the terrible wrath of Alexander. And yet near the end of this session, there was one young Macedonian soldier who, who came before him and he was accused of cowardice. The, the, the charge was that he fled from the face of battle. Now, cowardice was a crime that Alexander could not tolerate. And yet, as he looked upon the face of this young man, Alexander's countenance changed. It went from stern to soft. Perhaps he saw the, the, the lad's youth and took pity upon him. Smiling, he, he asked the soldier, Son, what is your name? 
the, the soldier spoke softly. Alexander. Well, as you can imagine, the king's expression had once again given way to his fury. For he then snapped at the young man, shouting, What did you say? The young man stood at, attempt, stood at attention and repeated, Alexander, sir. The king's face began to turn beet red, and he, he shouted once more, What is your name? This young soldier began to shake and, and stammered as best he could, Alexander, sir. It was then that the king burst out of his chair, grabbed this young man by his tunic, stared him in the face, and then threw him to the ground. He then commanded that soldier, either change your conduct or change your name. There are many in our world today who call themselves Christians. And yet when you look at their life, or if you, you learn what they truly believe, you will discover that, that they are nothing like their namesake. And it's not because they aren't perfect, that they aren't without sin. We're, we're, we're all sinners this side of Christ's return. Rather, it's as if they have no clue what, what the Jesus of the Bible is all about. And so it's hard to distinguish them from the world. This is why we have people who have, who have walked down aisles like this during a, an altar call, and yet afterwards they refuse to turn away from their sinful lifestyles. It's why we have churches where the words sin and, and repentance are never uttered. It's why we have people today claiming that, that they can be LGBTQ Christians. You, you see, this, this term Christian no longer means what it once meant. It, it no longer carries the weight that it should. We, we, we have turned what was once holy and, and, and good and have made it into a farce. And it's because we have, we have created this, this false image of Jesus. And then we have taken upon his name to get away with whatever we want. What did this word Christian originally mean? When it was first used, what did it, what did it describe? How, how was it defined by this early church? That's what I hope to answer as we, we look at our text today. But before we jump in, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. If you recall, we've been following the ministry of Peter, right? He, he had been traveling from town to town uh, in an effort to strengthen the, the, the differing churches that had formed since a, that persecution broke out after the stoning of Stephen. And if you recall, many, many of the saints within Jerusalem, they, they, they were forced to scatter, Right? Yet wherever they would go, they, they would bring the good news of Jesus with them. And if you remember, it was when, when Peter was in Joppa that, that he received this vision from God where, where this sheep came down from heaven showing him all kinds of animals. And, and then he heard the voice of God speak to him. Peter, kill and eat. 
And yet when Peter refused, God, God rebuked Peter, remember? Telling him to not call common that which God has made clean. You see, what, what God was doing, he was demonstrating to this man that the things that were once unholy, that were once impure, God has now made holy. He has now made pure. Well, as soon as this vision had ceased, Luke, Luke tells us that, that messengers from the house of Cornelius... This man who was a Roman centurion, a, a Gentile, that these messengers had arrived at the house where Peter was staying. And they were asking for Peter, hoping that he would come with them into Cornelius' home, into, into this Gentile's house, in order to preach the message of God. And that's exactly what Peter did. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ to these Gentiles. And do you remember what happened when he did? The Holy Spirit fell upon that house, signifying that these Gentiles were now a part of Christ's kingdom. And then last week, you, you got to hear Bobby preach about Peter relaying what had happened to the council within Jerusalem. And just like Peter, many of them had, had to have their theological presumptions challenged, right? Because God was now revealing to them how expansive his kingdom really is. And they, they had to submit themselves to, to this new work that God was doing and recognize that, that, that God's hand was upon the salvation of these Gentiles. That he was bringing them into his kingdom. And all this leads us to today, where we will see another work of God in distant lands. Look at, look, at, look at our first few verses. Look at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so our author, he, he takes us back once again to the stoning of Stephen, and how that event had led to the, the dispersion of the early church. And here we see that, that many of these believers, they, they headed not just into Judea, not just into Samaria, but into Gentile territory as well. Luke mentions Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Take, take a look at this map and you, you can see where these, places, where these places are, where they were. You see uh, Phoenicia was the region that was just north of Judea covering the coastal lands near the Mediterranean. At that time, it would have been considered what, what, is, what would have been the southern half of the Roman province of Syria. And then Luke mentions Cyprus, right? Which would be that, that large island in the Mediterranean Sea located uh, roughly 60 miles off the coast. And, and finally, he, he talks about the city of Antioch. Antioch would have been the, the capital of Syria, that Syrian province. And you can find it situated in the northern portion of the province of Syria. 
nestled about 20 miles inland off the coast of the Mediterranean. And Antioch is going to be key for us today. Now, now, now through this city of Antioch ran, ran a river, the Orontes River. And it was this river that really gave the city life. For, for not only did it connect it to the Mediterranean, but it, but it also connected it to the cities that were, that were further inland. And so Antioch was, became the capital of this Syrian province. And it became a city of great stature. And in fact, of all the, the major cities in the world at that time, uh, people would say that Antioch probably ranked third in importance behind Rome and Alexandria. And so this was a large, large city. It had a population of over a quarter million people. And it was a, a melting pot of sorts as there were many ethnicities and differing cultures that, that claimed Antioch as their home. And this would have included the Jews as well. And in fact, uh, according to the historian Josephus, there, there was probably some 25,000 Jews who were living in that city during the time of the apostles. Now, when you consider all these facts, considering that Antioch was a major hub for the Roman Empire, what we discover is that Antioch was also a very wealthy city. And with great wealth comes great greed. And this greed gave way to industries of depravity and debauchery as the sinful vices of men were exploited for a profit. And one could easily just walk down the streets and find houses of prostitution or, or gambling or alcohol, similar to what we'd find today in, say, Vegas, right? And so this is what you have. You have this large and prosperous and influential city, and yet it was a city where, where people could indulge their sinful desires for the right price. That is a setting which will be the focus for us today. You see, while, while Luke does mention three different places, he makes note of a striking difference when it came to Antioch, right? For, for while those who fled from the persecution were, were spreading the gospel wherever they would go, Luke makes it very, very clear that the gospel was only being proclaimed to the Jews. Except in Antioch. There he says that there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene that came to Antioch who were spreading the message to the Hellenists as well. Now, now what does he mean by this? I mean, who were these Hellenists? And we talked about this word before. I mean, basically, Hellenists were, were Jewish people who were born and raised outside of Israel. And because of this, they would typically speak Greek. They would speak Helleniza. Being, being that that was a universal language at the time. And that's why they were called Hellenists. But, but if this is the case, then, then wouldn't all of the Jews living outside of Israel be considered Hellenists? Yes, they would. So, so how do these verses make any sense? I mean, look at them again. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so if, if Hellenists were just Jews living outside of Judea, then, then why does Luke make a note that only in Antioch did they preach to the Hellenists? I mean, how, how is that any different? Bottom line, there, there, there is no difference. Here's what we have going on here. What we have going on here is what is known as a variant reading. A variant is, is where there is a discrepancy in the word that was used in the ancient manuscripts. And in, in the case of verse 20, there is a discrepancy. There, there is a variant. Now, now, if you were to pick up one of the Bibles in your pews, you, you would discover that, that they are all the ESV translation, right? The, the English Standard Version. And we have chosen that version for a particular reason, because, because it is very faithful to the original manuscripts. And yet, it is not perfect. If you look at that verse, verse 20, where you see the word Hellenist, you will also see a footnote. And that footnote should say something like this. Or Greeks, that is Greek-speaking non-Jews. And the reason they have that footnote is because different manuscripts were using different words in that very spot. Some would use the words Hellenistas, while others would use the word Hellenas. And as you see, there's just a slight, slight variation in the spelling there. And so it would be easy for someone who is transcribing the book of Acts to make this mistake. And yet Hellenistas means Hellenists, and Hellenas means Greeks, or Greek-speaking non-Jews. So how, how do we know which one's right? How, how do we know what Luke originally wrote? Typically what we try to do is we, we, we try to go to which manuscripts were the oldest, right? Because that will tell us what was closest to the original. But, but sometimes that, that doesn't really give us a clue to the original. Sometimes mistakes are made early on and are never caught until a generation later. And so there are times when we must use our common sense as well. And in my opinion, the, the, the ESV, though I love the ESV, I, I do not think it used common sense here. For the, for the word Hellenist just makes no sense at all. It doesn't show any distinction of what was happening in Antioch. And that's why most other translations will use the words, the word Greeks here. In fact, I, I did a study this week on it, and it was pretty much two to one. Um, of which translations use Greeks instead of Hellenists. And that's because the word Greeks, the word Hellenas, it, it agrees with the overall message that Luke was conveying here, right? And so, so what does this all mean? It, what it means is that in Antioch, the, the gospel was not just going out to the Jews, but it was going out to the Greeks as well. And this makes perfect sense with our passage because it fits the theme that Luke was driving and has been driving since chapter 10. 
I mean, what have we been looking at for the past two weeks? How, how the gospel was now being preached to the Gentiles. How the Holy Spirit fell upon the house of Cornelius when Peter shared Jesus with them. And, and, now, and Luke is now telling us that it, that it wasn't just in the house of Cornelius, but that there was a whole other group of Greeks in the city of Antioch who had come to believe in this Jesus all because these Jewish Christian exiles had come into their city proclaiming the name of Jesus. The gospel was being preached and Gentiles were being saved. But it wasn't just because of these exiles. For what does Luke also tell us? That the hand of the Lord was with them. And so this wasn't just a work of men but it was also a work of God. In other words, God was behind this evangelistic outreach. He was the one working in the hearts and the minds of these Greeks when they had heard this message. So, so what is the point? What, what, is, what is God trying to, to, to tell us? Well, for one, he, he is demonstrating that the events in Cornelius' house were not just a one-off, but that God had been working in the hearts of these Gentiles throughout the whole world. And two, and what will be the focus of our message today, is that the believers in Antioch give to us a, a demonstration, if you will, of what it truly means to be called a Christian. You see, now that these Gentiles had come into the fold, they, they, they no longer felt like, like a Jewish sect, right? And they were more than that. They were now their, their own unique group. And that's why we see this new name, right? That's why they were first called Christians in Antioch. But what does it mean to be called a Christian? Have you thought about that? The first thing that we see is what we were just talking about, right? That the hand of the Lord was with them. That in order to be a Christian, in order to do the things that Christians do, one must first be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The hand of the Lord must be with you. What does that look like? What does it mean to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, it means that you are no longer relying on your own strength. Rather, you're relying on the strength of Jesus. In fact, it is, it is more than this, for it is, it is a surrendering of one's life into Jesus' hands knowing full well that, that he is the one who is ultimately in control. And so you trust him. You, you rely on his strength and not your own. And that's because it is only when, that, only when that you are relying on his strength that you can truly live out this Christian life. And so we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only thing that we see in these verses, is it? There's more of what it means to be called a Christian. Look, look back once again at verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, 
upon coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so the second thing that we see of what it means to be called a Christian is that these people had a heart for the gospel. That they had an evangelistic zeal about them. That they, they, they saw the lost all around them. They saw all the debauchery. They, they saw all the rebellious attitude towards God. And instead of getting angry at their neighbors, what did they do? They showed them compassion. Compassion for those who were under God's wrath. And so they proclaimed the message of Jesus to these lost souls. For they knew that, that he and he alone was their only hope to find salvation. Let me ask you, when you, when you look at the world around you, when, when you look at all the different people who you come across each and every day, does your heart break for their lost state? Does the fact that they are enslaved to the desires of this world drive you to compassion? And does that compassion then lead to a gospel witness? Do you let them know that Jesus died for their sins? And that he rose from the dead and is now reigning in heaven above? Do you, do you press the issue that unless they turn away from those sins and place their trust in this Jesus, then they are still under the wrath of God and that they will spend eternity suffering in the lake of fire? Do, do you give them this warning? Do you have compassion for their lost state? Compassion because you know what will happen to them if they don't hear about Jesus. You see, these believers in Antioch, they, they understood the stakes. And that is why they preached the Lord Jesus. And what does Luke tell us? That their message was effective in reaching lost souls. Right? And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's great news. I would love to be able to proclaim that here today. Here in Oxford. Here in the surrounding areas. That a great number turned and believed in the Lord. Well, this good news ended up reaching the leaders within the church of Jerusalem. Look at, look at verses 22 through 24. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Having already come to the realization that the kingdom was expanding to the Gentiles, this, this word of this evangelistic explosion with an Antioch must, must have been tremendous news for this church in Jerusalem to hear. And yet because these people in Antioch were all young believers and included many Gentile converts, converts who wouldn't have known anything of the Hebrew scriptures, it was imperative for them to send someone to give them help. 
And that's why we see Barnabas going to Antioch. This is now our third encounter with this man named Barnabas. This man whose name means son of encouragement. Uh, if you remember, we, we, we've known him as a generous giver, right? When he, when he, in the past, we saw him sell his own land and lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> and we know him as a mediator as well. He, it was he who was the one who brought healing between Saul and, and the church that he persecuted. And perhaps this was part of the reason why they, they sent him, for he was a bridge builder. He was someone who, who could cover that gap between Jew and Gentile. But what else does Luke tell us? He, he tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And so, so he was a, a worthy servant of Christ, someone who would be able to help this young church as they were beginning to grow. And what did Barnabas witness when he had arrived in Antioch? Luke tells us that he witnessed the grace of God. In other words, he, he, he saw that the news that had been reported to him in Jerusalem was true. That many had come to the Lord. And, that, and now they were proclaiming Jesus as their king. And this is why Barnabas encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord. And to have a steadfast purpose. He wanted them to be faithful. He wanted them to be steadfast. And this is the third thing that we see about what it means to be called a Christian. That, that Christianity isn't just some fad that is to be followed. A fad that will eventually die out. That, that these people's zeal wouldn't be driven by their emotions. No. Rather it would be driven by a true and lasting work of the Lord. That is what Barnabas desired for this church. I'm sure by now many of you have heard about the revival that is going down in Asbury College. How, how there are thousands of people in continual prayer and worship. And while this is a good thing to happen, my, my prayer is that this isn't just some fact, Right? Something that is driven by emotions alone and not by the Spirit of God. That, that, that such devotion wouldn't remain in Asbury, but that it would go with these people once they finally leave. But, but the only way that we can tell if this is real is by being patient, right? By, by seeing the fruit that will come from this. I mean, will these people be steadfast? Will these people remain faithful? Or will it just be another experience for them? Something that will slowly fade away as the emotions run their course. Only time will tell. If what was going on in Antioch was the real deal, then Barnabas knew that these people would have to remain steadfast and faithful. And yet, because there was so much growth, because people were coming to the Lord day after day, Barnabas also realized that he wasn't enough. 
right, that he was going to need some help. That he alone would not be able to bring about the maturity and the direction that this young, young church truly needed in order for them to remain steadfast, to remain faithful. And so he was going to need another mature believer, one who would help him to guide these people in the ways of Jesus. And this is why we see what we do in our next two verses. Look at verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Okay, we brought back Barnabas, so why not bring back Saul, right? You know, here, here we see this man again, this one who used to be the persecutor of the church, but had now become the, the zealous proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And Barnabas had recruited this man probably for a few different reasons. And for one, Barnabas knew the kind of impact that Saul would have in the evangelistic outreach, for, for he was gifted toward that end. But, but more than that, Barnabas also knew the kind of theological mind that Saul had, having been trained under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He, he knew that Saul would be able to teach these Greek believers in their knowledge of the scriptures, their, their, their lacking knowledge of the scriptures. And he knew that Saul would be able to help him to raise up elders within this church. And yet, most importantly, Barnabas knew that this was the kind of ministry that Saul was called to do. If you remember, it was God who had specifically called this man to be his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles. And so this mission in Antioch seemed like it was the perfect fit for a man like Saul. And so together, they spent a whole year in this city building this church up. <clears throat> but not only did these men instruct this newly founded church, but, but implied within this text is that this church then submitted themselves to these men's instructions. In other words, there was discipleship going on. And that is the fourth thing that we see of what it means to be called a Christian. It is to be submissive to the instruction of God as God's word is delivered by godly men. Submissive to the instruction of God as God's word is delivered by godly men. Submission is a difficult word for our generation, is it not? And we like to be individuals. We like to be autonomous. We're autonomous beings, right? We're independent of any authority. And that's why even today, even within the church, there there's, seems to be this rebellious attitude against God's word and against the preaching of God's word. And yet to be truly be called a Christian, one must submit themselves to the teachings of Jesus. Ask yourselves, do, do you come to church to be changed by the preached word? To be transformed? 
Or are you just coming hoping that the pastor will, will preach some feel-good message? Something that might make you laugh. Something that will make you smile. Something that will scratch your itching ears. But will not challenge you one single bit. You see, to be a, a, a true Christian is to have a transformed life, right? And the only way to have a transformed life is if you submit yourself to the words of Jesus. And, and this is exactly what happened with these believers in Antioch. They listened to the instruction of both Barnabas and Saul as these men brought to them the words of Jesus. And yet there is even more that the Christian life entails, is there not? Look at, look at verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here we see that this prophet named Agabus came, came to this church in Antioch and, and prophesied that, that a great famine would come upon the whole world. And Luke lets us know that this was the very famine that struck during the reign of Claudius. Historians think this probably hit around 45 A.D. But, but it was this, this prophecy that demonstrated both the sacrificial character and the, the love for the body of Christ that this newly formed church had. For what did they do? They, they determined that they would send relief to all the churches within Judea, to, to, to churches that were made up pretty much of only Jews. Now, now remember, this church in Antioch was made up of both Jews and Greeks. And so for many of them, they, they had no loyalty when it came to the Jews. And yet they knew what a famine would do to those living within Judea. How, how in these poorer and more rural regions, it would be a matter of life and death. And that is why they took up this collection. In order that they might send money to these churches. But not only that, but then, but then they, they entrusted this money to both Barnabas and, and Saul, right? Both of whom were Jews. And, and think about this. First, they were relying on the word of a Jewish prophet. They, they trusted that what, what this man had said had come from above. You know, other than this man, there was no indication that, that the whole world was going to experience a famine. Two, they, these believers were willing then to forgo their own riches in order to help deliver help to the people, to people that they did not know. And not only to people that they did not know, but, but to Jews. Again, many in, the, in this church were Greeks and they had no loyalty to the Jewish people except through Jesus Christ. And yet they had compassion upon them because of Jesus Christ. And then finally three, they then, they then trusted to send this money that it would be delivered safely by the hands 
of two Jewish men, Barnabas and Saul. And so when you add this all up, what you see in these believers was a love and a commitment to the body of Christ. They didn't care about nationality. They didn't care about their ethnicity. They were all unified in Jesus. And and this leads us to the fifth thing of what it means to be called a Christian. That we are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That there is a unity within the body. To be a Christian is to have solidarity with those whom you don't even know. Simply because you are linked together in Jesus. Now before we finish, I want to go back to the end of verse 26. I'm sure you noticed that there was a little sentence that I skipped. A sentence that really ties all these things together. Luke tells us this. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I think it is worthy to note that this is the first time that we see this word being used in the New Testament. In fact, this this word is only used three times throughout the whole Bible. Twice in the book of Acts and once by the Apostle Peter. In the Greek, the word is Christianos. And it is really a word with a suffix at the end. Christos meaning Christ or Messiah, and the suffix Ianos. And Ianos is supposed to give whatever word it's tied to a diminutive form or, or express it as a small size. And sometimes this was used to show a, a person's affection towards the word it was describing. And so a, a literal, literal translation would be something like this. Little Christ. Or, or a lover of Christ. It would be like a child who goes everywhere his daddy goes because he has a great awe and a great love for his papa. Basically, this term Christian or Christianos meant a Christ follower. I kind of find it hilarious today when I hear people say, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a Christ follower. Because the two have the exact same meaning. And both indicate someone who who loves and trusts in Jesus and wants to model their life after him. Now, now the other thing to note about this verse is is we, we should realize that this moniker, this word Christianos, It originated from the outside. Notice how Luke tells us that these people were called Christians. In other words, this this name Christian, this name Christianos, it was given by the outside world. It was given by those who who didn't know Jesus. Now, Now, how would those who are on the outside know to give such a label to these believers in Antioch? The answer is simple. Because these people were not quiet about their faith. In fact, their their love for Jesus was so obvious, it was so loud, that those around them couldn't help but call them Christianos, Christians. 
And yet that's what happens when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That, that's what happens when you have a passion to evangelize the lost. That's what happens when you, when you have a faithful and steadfast commitment to Jesus. That's what happens when you're submissive to Jesus' words. And that's what happens when you are unified with the body of Christ. Because when you are those things, then you are going to look different than the rest of the world around you. And the world can't help but take notice. You see, unlike that, that cowardly soldier who, who fled from the face of battle, these believers in Antioch, they lived up to their namesake. They were little Christ. They were lovers of Christ. They were Christ followers. And it was obvious to everyone whom they came in contact with. How about you? Do you call yourself a Christian? Are you Christianos? And if you are, if that is who you claim to be, then, then are you living the life in a manner worthy of your namesake? In a manner that makes the world take notice? Dear friends, Jesus will have it no other way. If you are going to take his name, then you better have a, have a heart for the lost as he did. If you are going to take his name, then you need to be steadfast in your faith. You need to be in it for the long haul. If you're going to take his name, then you better submit yourself to his instructions. If you're going to take his name, then you must be unified with his church, with the body of Christ. And most importantly, if you're going to take his name, then his hand must be with you. You must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. For that is what it means to be a Christian. Listen, if you want to see a true revival, then, then it's high time that we take this term Christian a lot more seriously. For, for when you take that name, what you're doing is you are representing Jesus Christ. And only his approval will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now knowing that it is only through the work of your Holy Spirit that we can truly bear the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot do these things in our own strength. And so we ask you to help us in our time of need. Give to us a, a zealous fervor that we might spread the message of your Son to those around us. Help us to be faithful and steadfast, allowing us not to be driven by emotional fads that will fade over time. And mold our hearts in order that we might be submissive to your instruction, even when it goes against the wisdom of this world. And finally, we ask that you would unify us as the body of Christ. 
in order that the world might know that we are Christianos, that we are Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.